0: I want to read this morning Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, I pray this morning that we would see, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the need to be surrendered completely to you. Lord, you require every part of us, not just the parts that we want to give. Lord, when you called us to be your children, you called us to live sold out for you. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, convicted, and be moved to order our lives in light of the glorious truth of your gospel. Lord, I pray that your word would affect us, the words of other believers. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be toiled, tilled, and ready to receive the seed of your word and your conviction. And Lord, let these words this morning be a reminder to us of who you are and what you have called us to be. Lord, I pray that the children that are here would hear your word this morning, that they would not be distracted by the, their own hearts and minds, Lord, but would hear the truth and it would begin to bring questions to them. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us here this morning would be challenged to draw near to you. Give me clarity and wisdom, discernment in sharing what you've put on my heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In World War II, there was a man named Helmuth James Von Moltke. That's a, a mouthful. Um, he was a count in Germany. His father was actually, his grandfather was a field marshal during World War II, if you know anything of World War, II, World War I history. Um, very famous for some of the battles that he fought. But James was not the same. Interestingly, he was raised in a Christian science family. I didn't know that was around at that time, but um, and so his parents had taught him nonviolence, which Christian Science does believe, and nonresistance. But as his life unfolded, you see a transformed man from this young man who his grandparents were Lutheran, his parents were Christian Scientists. And then when he dies, I believe he was a Christian, a true believer in Christ. He went to law school, and in law school, he excelled. Just ethically strong young man. And because of his excellence, he got jobs in the German government pre-Nazi regime. And then he started studying British law and international law because he wanted to be able to work with the German government in Europe and with other nations. And he passed the bar in England, actually. And so he could actually have lived in London or somewhere in England and and actually practice there. But... Instead of doing that, he continued to serve in this branch of the German government called the Abwar. It's kind of hard to say. I probably didn't say it right, so don't ask your German friends. But this was the Office of Legal Matters where the military would come, or or in any situation, the government would come to this office to see the... Um, Consequences and to see how ethical something they did was. And so he would look at international law and he would study these things. But when Nazis came in, they continued to do that, which uh, shocking as we may find, they ignored a lot of what men like von Molke said. However, von Molke began to realize that. Germany didn't have a plan to end the war. That Germany didn't have a way to victory. They just cared about little battles, little victories. There was no attempt to win, in his belief. It was, when we win this, well, we'll move on to something new. There was no goal, end goal, other than complete annihilation of anyone else eventually is what the German government saw. But as a man his life was very different because he went to this school when he was in 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 what would be our university level. He was strongly drawn to different groups and saw some value in, in some of these things, but throughout his life, he never could just buy into all these things that were being said. But at the end of his life, he was martyred. He was martyred because he began to meet with uh, both Catholic and Protestant ministers, as well as other men who had like mind like his, that saw that the war was not going to end well. That it was going to end in Germany's Germany's defeat. And so, he and his group of men, called the Crusoe Circle, and his wife and a couple other women as well, they gathered together to set out a plan to recover after the war. A plan for even the way the government was set up. Every level from government to religious liberties and and all these things they were plans they were thoughts they were written out that's it that's all they did he was not about to go with Bonhoeffer if you know who that is and try to bomb the Fuhrer Hitler he was not that kind of man he was a silent resister in the sense of not about to go in violently. Unfortunately, all his efforts came to naught because a friend of his that he had a relationship with brought everything down on him. Because Von Moltke had been put in jail because he knew someone, but they didn't have anything on him. They had nothing that would tie him to anything. But then a close friend of his and his family was a part of a plot to kill Hitler. It wasn't Bonhoeffer though Bonhoeffer was a friend of his. And because that failed the German government and the Gestapo began to search throughout that man's acquaintances to find out who he knew. And it came out that Von Molke knew him, though von Molke tried to convince this man not to go ahead with a violent attack on this man, on Hitler. He said, why in the world do you even care about this? Well, at the end of his life, I actually have a book here been reading. It's these are all letters that he wrote to his wife. from 1940. I think 39. Yeah, 1939 to 1945. He wrote her nearly every day. Unless he was with her or could not because of his he wrote letters. And so at the end of his life there are some letters that he was able to smuggle out with a a pastor to his wife. And in that letter we hear about his trial. And this is something that has been really um, strong to me in the last few months. And so, at, as he entered the near, of, near the end of his life... He's going on trial, and he knows. He knows that they will not give him a a fair trial. Because if they let him get away, then others will believe that they can do the same things. Though he technically did nothing but speak about what could be done after they lost the war. But that was treason. That was treason. This is what it says. He said, we discussed what, not by any means, questions of organization, not the structure of the Reich, all this dropped away in the course of the trial. So the, the trial didn't even talk about any of these things. All this dropped away in the course of the trial, and Schultz said so explicitly in his speech for the prosecution. And this differed completely from the other cases but discussions dealt with questions of practical, ethical demands of Christianity. And he goes on, he says, Nothing else, for that alone, we are condemned. So, he strongly was convicted. His Christian moral ethic, based on the Word of God, was the reason that he was meeting how should the church respond at the end of this war? How should we as a church be a part of shaping the post culture world that we are going to live in? And then he says about the judge, his, whose name was Frasler. he says, In one of his tirades, Frasler said to me, Only in one respect are we and Christianity alike. Now what would that what in the possibility could that be? We demand the whole man. That's what Hitler and the Nazis demanded. Every part of the man. But the problem was Van Molke and men like him could not serve man holy, and God holy. So this made me question, and this is the title of our message this morning, what does the gospel require of me? What does the gospel require of me? And the answer, the whole man, everything. There's nothing out there that we can throw away. That same judge, he continued, he said, from whom do you take your orders? From the beyond or from Adolf Hitler? Who commands your loyalty and your faith? These were all rhetorical questions. He knew the answer because he had already seen von Moltke's life. He had seen what von Moltke had been doing. When we get to the end of our lives, will we have these kinds of questions with a known answer asked of us maybe it's not Adolf Hitler it could be someone else who do we take our orders from as he gets near the end of this letter there's something that really strike, struck me Because he began to see in his time of being in jail and then his trial, he saw something very interesting. And then he he speaks about himself. He says, I stand before Fraisler, the judge, not as a Protestant, not as a big landowner, not a nobleman, not as a Prussian, not as a German, All that was excluded in the trial. But as a Christian and nothing else. And then he says about what he's seen God is doing. He says, For what a mighty task your husband was chosen. All the trouble the Lord took with him, the infinite detours, the intricate zigzag curves, all suddenly find their explanation in one hour on the 10th of January, 1945. He's seeing his whole life behind him, and he realizes for the first time that every, what seemingly was an ignorant zigzag or detour or whatever, everything that God had been doing in his life had a purpose. And that purpose came that day in that trial before that judge And he finally says, I just wept a little, not because I was sad or melancholy, but because, not because I want want to return, but because I am thankful and moved by this proof of God's presence. And he's speaking about his whole life. It is not given to us to see him face to face, but we must needs be moved intensely when we suddenly see that all our life he has gone before us as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and that he permits us to see it suddenly in a flash. Now nothing more can happen. He had security. He saw God's work throughout his life. and You didn't read all these letters that he wrote, the way he showed his love to his wife. But his life reminded me of myself, because I'm like, Lord, why am I going this way and that way, and it seems like everything just doesn't make sense. Like, why did did I have a passion for Guatemala that ended in two years? Why did this happen? Why did I go to seminary? Why did I do these things? And then, here I am today, not even planning to be originally, preaching this message this morning. And it's this message, I believe, is the reason why I am here. Because God requires all of me, not the portions I want to give. Not the portions that I want to hold back. So when we think of what Romans chapter 12 says, if you look back there, I've preached this sermon before, essentially, But this is something that has become even more passionate for me and is the impetus for a few sermons, well, sermons a couple sermon series that I I would like to do here at this church. But he says in verse one, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This is not the Christianity that is proclaimed by 75% of the churches in our, our nation today. I don't know about around the world, but many churches are proclaiming a free love God who just loved greatly, but they forget that if we were not sinners, we wouldn't need Jesus to die and be resurrected. The gospel... Right? What's Paul saying, therefore? In light of all of Romans up to this point, the gospel that he preached throughout the book of Romans up to verse chapter 12, therefore in light of this, that's why we present our bodies. Not in our own strength, but in the power of Christ, in the power of His Holy Spirit. That's how we present our bodies To him a holy sacrifice. It is his mercy that leads us and fills us. I was thinking about David at Ziglag. He could have just gotten bitter with everybody else and said, I'm done. Or he could have just said, come on guys, let's go, let's go get this guy. No, but he didn't. He, he committed to do the will of God. That's what made David different than Saul. Saul was not about doing God's will, except when it was convenient and it made the people happy. But David, what does it say? He built himself up in the Lord and then he called for the ephod Abiathar came, and he said, Lord, should I go? Will I have the victory? God says, go. Now, he could have stopped there and said, you know what, we're too tired. Let's take a nap. They've been traveling for three days to Ziklag from David's trip to go join the Philistine armies. But he didn't. He said, let's go. And so they started off and then they got to a river and some of them said, we're too tired. We can't go any further. So about half of them stayed. And he took half with him. And they just happened, just happened to come upon an Egyptian slave who had been left for dead. That was totally coincidence. No, it was God's plan. God had a plan for this. And they nursed him back to, to health. And he told them, I'll tell you how to get to them, but do not give me back to my master and don't kill me. And they go, they get the victory, they get all the spoils, but not just the spoils from their home in Ziklag, but they get the spoils of all that raiding party. What about, though, when God's will seems to bring only pain or suffering? that's when it's difficult. You know, in this case, David asked the Lord and he said, go. What if God had said no? Would David have stayed? Yes. Why? Because we've been reading Psalm 119 and David loved the word of God. He loved to be in the will of God. Because he realized that it expresses the will of God and that it allows him and you and I to know the Lord. So when we present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices to the Lord, what does that look like? Well, looks like loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And I, I began to break it down. If we look at the whole man, there's, there's kind of three aspects to being a human being. And I'm kind of taking this from a a devotional or a discipleship book that I have. And so I want to see God wants men who are wholeheartedly, women who are wholeheartedly surrendered to Him. Not just part of it. He wants our heart, He wants our head, and He wants our hands. So if we start at the inside, that's where it starts. We start with our hearts. And what does our heart in our culture, in our world mean? It's the seat of our desires and our character, our affections. What is it that we love? What is it that we desire? What is it that we want? And our character. What is it that we exhibit? Why are we motivated to do something? Is it because it pleases God or because we know it will please Jack, Sue, and Jim? And this made me think of Isaiah chapter 38, if you'll turn there. Isaiah thirty eight starting in verse one. It's incredible that this passage comes when it does because Hezekiah has just had the victory over the Assyrians because of God's faithfulness. Because Hezekiah had sought the Lord. He wept, he ripped his clothes, and he went and inquired of the Lord. Very much like David. And God gives them the victory, sends Assyria away, and then this passage... Begins. He says, In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Set your house in order. Does that mean that his house was out of order? Not necessarily. But this means you need to prepare your home, your, peop- your children, your wife, everything that is under your authority to be ready for your death. Go get your gravestone. Go get your grave plot. Make sure you got a will in today's day. Make sure that your family is prepared for your death. And it doesn't come without preparation. But Hezekiah isn't ready to accept this. He says, Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. His first response was not to go and cry and whine and say, Lord, why? Why?" No, his first thing is to cry to the Lord. In verse 3 he says, And said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you. How I have walked before you in truth. So truth, something... He has believed something to be true. And with a whole heart. I have not held back any of my heart in following you. I have spent my whole heart in following and doing what you have showed me and what I have seen to be truth. But it's interesting, he doesn't just do it, he walked before you in truth. Right? See, what transformed his heart transformed his actions, which in this sermon today would be hands. His actions were affected by what had changed his heart. The truth had transformed his heart so that he was following God, walking after God in truth. And he said, I and I have done what is good in your sight. And then he wept bitterly. Cuz he knew if God didn't change, he was going to die. He wasn't ready to die by his own estimation. But the Lord heard his cry. And it says in verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. What a prayer. He didn't cry till he had already prayed. That's typically the opposite of what we do. We cry until we're done crying, and then, like, oh, I guess I'll ask God now. No, he brought his request to the Lord first, and then, because God was everything for him. He didn't try to go out and, and take it for himself. No, he waited on the Lord. Turn with me to 2 Samuel verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the two of the Amalekites, the ones that had taken Ziklag, that David returned two days in Ziklag. And the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, From where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How did, you, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled before the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan and his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The man, the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on the Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him and saw me and called to me and said, Here I am, he said, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not lift after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Question. What do you think David's response is going to be? Joy! Oh, yes, I've been waiting on God to finally do this. I've been wandering in the desert. I've been running away from Saul for years. doesn't seem like God has directed my life at all. It seems like ever since the day that Samuel anointed me, my life has been a wreck. Could he have said that? Possibly. His life hadn't been since the day Samuel anointed him king. He was not living much like a king. Isn't that how some people treat the Christian life? Once you become a born to believer, your life is going to be ease and comfort. You'll have control over everything going on in your life. It's just going to be easy. No, that's a lie. David understood this. And it's interesting, in all that time, from the day he was anointed to the day that Saul died, did David ever take or try to take the life of the king? Did he ever try to say, you know what God, you promised maybe this is how I'm supposed to bring this about? Well, he had people whispering that in his ear, right? But he never put out his hand to bring about his own victory why because David had a heart after God this is what is the difference between a believer who makes it and a believer who doesn't make it or someone who claims to be a believer if we don't deal with the heart we will ultimately not make it because that's where everything starts So David rejoiced, right? And that's what it says in verse 11. No, it says, And David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord in the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. They weren't rejoicing. Oh, we've got the crown and the jewels and all this. No. No. And then David turned to the young man. Did this young man tell the truth? No. The Bible says that David, that Saul killed himself. This young man was seeking what? He was seeking a reward for, by lying. Because even Saul's. what do you call those guys? Armor-bearer would not kill Saul. He was too afraid. So David asked, he says, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, Amalekite. Then David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? you see this? David, though he has been anointed king of Israel... He has not rejected Saul as anointed as well. And he saw that he could not do that. And David called one of the young men and said, Go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. Even in the death of Saul and Jonathan, David showed respect to them as God's chosen for the time that they were chosen. Yes, Saul caused him great agony and tried to kill him multiple times. Spent months hunting him in the wilderness. David got so tired of being hunted that he just went and lived with the Philistines so that he wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. But all these examples show men who are so ethically informed in the heart that it has transformed them completely. Cuz this is not natural. If this had happened in a secular kingdom at the same time, you know what that new that that David would have been rejoicing having a drunken party. But David was different. He had Seen and had known the Lord. A.W. Tozer says this about our devotion to the Lord. He says, I believe we ought to be suicide bombers. Oh, careful, <laughs> that wouldn't set well today, right? We ought to tie ourselves to the cockpit and dive on the deck. And if we go out, we go out. Sink or swim, live or die, irrevocably attached in love and faith and devotion to Jesus Christ the Lord. What's he saying? There's no way back. Burn the bridges. Is it possible in our lives, myself included, that we have an escape route? We're ready, you know, we're in the cockpit, but we're not strapped in. We're ready to bail at the last minute. Because maybe God's plan for our life would be to die like Von Moltke at 30-something years old. He was 38 when he died. I'm too young to die. I need, a, I need a parachute. All I had to do was deny Christ, really. If he had said, yes, the Fuhrer is the one I take orders from, boom, trial's over. But he couldn't. Because Christ was his Lord. Do we have escape routes that are not God's way? Are we truly wholeheartedly Following the Lord. I don't know. That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Tozer goes on. He says, Get a man converted who knows that he joins Jesus Christ. He's that. Sorry. Get a man converted who knows that if he joins Jesus Christ, he's finished. And that while he's going to come up and live anew, as far as the world's concerned, he's not going back. Then you have a real Christian indeed. This is a no turning back. What did Jesus say? When you take up the plow, if you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. There are a lot of people in the church who are ready to look back. Are we ready? Are we trying to find an escape route? The Christian walk is not easy like we thought it would be. Well, that's what normal Christianity is about. It's not about ease and comfort. Yes, God brings it in our lives, and I'm not denying that. But that's not why we follow Jesus. We don't follow Jesus because it's easy. We follow Jesus because we believe it. Because God has transformed our hearts. And because He's transformed our hearts, He's also transforming our minds. And that's the next section we see here in Romans chapter 12. Because in verse 2 He says, And do not be conformed to this world. Well, how does that conforming happen? well it's through our mind because he says but in contrast to being conformed to the world be transformed by the renewing of your mind see as Christians it's not just the heart that needs transformation just think about this before you became a Christian how long were you in the world maybe 10 years maybe you got saved young maybe 20 years Maybe 30, maybe 40. Who knows? I, I don't know. So you're telling me that your mind has been trained for 20 years, let's say, or 30 years, to be like the world. To conform to the world. Yes, we need our mind to be transformed. If we do not believe, just not only in our heart, but have an intellectual, for a lack of a better word, Belief in God as well. We have to believe it not only in our heart, not just in the seat of our feelings and desires, but also God has to change our mind so that we can see the truth. That's why we need the Holy Spirit so desperately, so that we can understand the Word here, right? Because Psalm 119, what was the psalmist always asking? Teach me your ways. Show me Your Word. Give me understanding. Give me discernment. Here, the psalmist who said things like he said, he still was constantly seeking God to give him understanding of His Word. He wasn't saying, give me understanding of my heart. I want my mind to grasp what what You're saying, Lord. Because if we don't assent and have a, a... mental understanding of who God is. Not, not that we have to understand the Trinity completely, or whatever it may be, but if, we, if there's no way that we can mentally grasp who God is and what He's done, what His Word is saying to us, we will be talked out of our faith. This is why it's so important for fathers and grandparents to teach our children what is truth. Truth to explain to them why we believe what we believe. Why the Bible says this. Why the Bible says that. Because when they get out of our homes, they are going to be attacked because the world is seeking to conform their minds and ours alike to this world. And speaking of that, just because... We became a Christian doesn't mean the world is not trying to conform our minds. Or the Paul would not say, do not be conformed. You think the billboards that you see going into Louisville don't have a purpose but to conform you to buy whatever's on them? Or to believe the message that they're preaching? That's not a a sermon. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You don't think the ads that you see or the television that you watch is proclaiming a message? It is. It wants your mind to believe something. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Megan and I were watching a show that we like, I guess. (laughs) And it was interesting, the advice that this one woman was giving to this young lady or young girl. I was like, Oh, that's right, but the second part is really wrong. It was very much influenced by this world. We don't realize how much even good TV shows, even Christian movies supposedly are influenced by the world. I watched the that movie uh, American Underdog. I don't know if any of you watched it. I would not recommend it. Um, I was shocked that, the, the, based on who the producers and, and directors were, that this movie never condemned sin. This movie is about uh, Kurt Warner. If you know football, he won some Super Bowls with the St. Louis Rams. And he claims to be a Christian. Well, he was living with his girlfriend while claiming to be a Christian. And yes, he did end up marrying the woman and they, they are still married. However, what is sad is that the movie never, ever, not once makes a point to show that Kurt Warner ever repented of doing that. There was never a repentance for sin in the entire movie, it was just like it was a heartwarming underdog story. I could have got that very same Mooney movie at Sony Television, whatever, you know. Disney could have done this movie. No problem. Our minds need to be renewed. That's where a second part of transformation starts. It, it's interesting. You know, you read Ezekiel 36 and he says he will give them a new heart and a new spirit, but there's nothing about a new mind. It's that new heart and the new spirit, the Holy Spirit truly in us that transforms our mind. It makes us begin to see the truth for what it is. That's why we need the word in our lives. Why we need to be pouring it over us. Because think of the thousands and thousands of words you have go through you in a day. Whether radio, reading, um, Facebook. Just name the source of words. I don't know how many words on average a human being um, hears in a day or, or like overall receives. But think about that in light of God's Word. If all you're hearing is something that is not true or maybe partially true, then how do you know that you're right? Eventually you're going to start believing what you're hearing. You know, if you only watch fox news for a month i dare you to go to cnn for a month you're going to be done with cnn the first day or vice versa you you go and watch cnn all day for a month and then you try to watch fox news like right? those people are crazy right because they're both being sensational this is true i'm not trying to be political this is I was shocked. I worked for a customer that all she did was watch Fox News, and so it was awful because I had I could hear it all the time. I'm like, how do they make up this stuff? <laughs> like, how, how do they have this much time to talk about this subject? And a lot of times, it was just ignorance. They're like, waste of my life. I was thinking, man, I need to bring some earphones in and listen to the Bible or listen to some music or something because this is, this is wearing me thin and I'm conservative <laughs> and because I'm a Christian. But, uh, but it was funny, in the midst of that, one day I, I think I was working for someone or somewhere and they had CNN on. It was like a totally different world. I was like, is this the same country? <laughs> because this one's saying this, and that one's saying that, and there doesn't seem to be any truth in either of them. But what are we receiving in? What What is it that our mind is consuming? Because what we consume on a regular basis will conform our mind, or renew our mind. The question is, what is it? You know, in, in Romans eight, verses twelve, it says, So then, in light of what Christ has done, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're no longer under that obligation. For if you living if you are living according to flesh, you must die. But if you are but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will die. Isn't that beautiful? To me it is. And then he talks about being children of God. But if we're... See, this this is a part of our mind being transformed. We need the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in us. This is why the Holy Spirit is so important for our walk with the Lord. While we need His fresh infilling in our lives. Not because we're not born again and we haven't experienced the move of His gifts in our life. But we need a, a fresh renewing of His Spirit. Because we need His guidance. We need to be led by the Spirit so that our minds is, are not conformed to the world. So that our minds are not um, indiscerning. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Like you saw this you understood this and somehow you've already been taken captive so he says this is the only thing i want to find out from you did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by faith really because what's going on in galatian the jews there's jewish believers who are trying to say works you have to work. There has to be works in your life that bring salvation. Not a evidence of God's work in your life, but the evidence that you're saved. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Do you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works of miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Which one? Even so, Abraham believed him as, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are the faith Who those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. You are not a child of Abraham because you're circumcised. That's what he's saying. You are a child of Abraham because you believe in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial power. This is why, this very thing is the reason why I, and I will say this with complete conviction, I hate liberation theology. This is why I hate theology that seeks to make the gospel nothing. Because things like liberation theology are not meant to bring any hope. They can't. Because they're based on man. They're they're centered on a humanistic view of man. But Jesus Christ came. He came and died and he gave his life because he loved you. And he gave up that life for you and I. He didn't come and die because it felt good. He did it because it was the only way for us to have relationship with Him. Sin. Our sin was the reason. That is why God requires the whole man. He says, Be crucified with Christ. Take up your cross daily. Right? Paul said... I'm crucified with Christ, yet nevertheless I live, not I don't live, but Christ lives in me. That is the Christian life. It is a crucified life. It is not a life doing whatever you want. It is a life that is committed wholly to the Lord. And I mean the word holy, which means set apart. When God says, Be ye holy as your heavenly Father is holy. What does he mean? You are one, first, set apart. That means you are set apart for the purposes of God. Now, that's going to look different for each and every one of us. As a grandmother, it may be you preaching the gospel to your grandkids. As a grandfather, same thing. At your work. It may be you living as an example of honesty and integrity. At your school, same thing. Honesty and integrity and being consistent and open about your faith. And that goes for all of us. And being intentional about putting yourself in a position to share the gospel. Maybe it's a group at the library or the co-op extension or whatever it may be. Putting yourself there not just to make, not to make friends, not that you don't want to have friends, but to be a light because they need Jesus. They may look like a nice old granny, no offense, but a nice old granny can go to hell just as badly as a mean old robber and thief Hell's not just reserved for the extreme wicked. It's for all who do not follow Jesus. Amen. God wants the whole man, not part of the man. When we, as Christians, reserve a portion of our being, whether that's a part of our heart, maybe we have a delight that is destroying our relationship with him I don't know what it could be there's there's many different things maybe sports sexual sensual things who knows maybe it's control maybe it's pride I don't know what it is but if our hearts And we're holding on to something. And we we won't allow God to correct our character. If God is not able and being given the opportunity to correct our character, it will not be or end well. You may look like a Christian for years, but those thorns will come in and choke the life out of you. When persecution comes, it's going to be too hard. It's like those those seeds. But when we commit as David and many others, just think of the apostles in the book of Acts. They were ready to lay down their lives. They were committed to the Lord. Their hearts had been transformed. They were ready to lay down their life. And that is a supreme characteristic of believers. Self-sacrificial love. You can see that in Galatians 5.22 and 1 Corinthians 13. It is not a love that is about me. It is about glorifying God. That is why we follow Jesus. It is not because we have to. It's because we love Him. We need Him. That's where it starts in the heart. And if our heart and our head have been transformed, if we've been given that new heart and our head has been transformed and the Holy Spirit is in us, then something's going to change with our hands and our actions. Our Works in this world will be motivated by love for the lost, love for our Savior, Not "I'm trying to earn my salvation love." It is a love for him. Oftentimes, the problem is we have not forsaken our nets. and say, "Well, what does that talk about? Remember, Peter? Jesus was talking to them. You know, are you going to leave me like everyone else? He said, and and in one case, not the the common one. He says, "I have forsaken all. I've forsaken everything, Lord. Why wouldn't I go and die with you?" But did did he forsake all? At that point? No. He still was afraid of death. He was still afraid of what others would think about him. He was passionate. He was quick to speak his mind. But he had not yet forsaken all. But something transformed him. Right? Because by the time you get to Acts chapter 2... Peter is not the same man that stood there that day and said, I will never deny you. No, he had been transformed. I believe between meeting Jesus on the seashore, asking Him about His love for Him, and then the filling of the Holy Spirit, he was a different man. And his life, the way he lived, the actions he took were totally different. Yes, he was still passionate. But it wasn't about him anymore. It was about the Lord. His life was poured out for the brethren because he loved them as Christ had loved him. That is a sign of God's work in your heart and your head. That you no longer do things because, well, this will make me look good and, and Granny Faye will like me now. <laughs> I'm not picking on you. You've been married so long. I got to, you know, that's somebody to look up to. <laughs> no, we should live our lives because we want to please the Lord. That's what it's about as Christians. Are we seeking to please the Men in this church, or the women in this church, are each seeking to please God no matter what it costs. If God calls us to do something to take action in a certain way, are we going to let fear of man to keep us from doing that? Or are we going to say, "Lord, I don't see anything in Scripture that would deny that this is your will?" My heart desires to do this. I believe this is from you. Your spirit within me is giving me the red light or the green light to go ahead. Not that we shouldn't seek one another's advice. But in the end, if God has directed us to do something, we need to do it. The Christian life is not just sit around and wait till Jesus comes back. No, it's living life every day. The way you work at your work, the way you go to the grocery, the way that every part of your life should be ordered by the Lord. How you go on vacation, how you do this, how you do that. Every aspect of our life as believers should be done unto the Lord. Even the way that we go about our day. I was thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting in verse 18. The Lord talking to Moses says, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. How might we do that today? Maybe We impress them on our hearts by meditating on the Word, by thinking on the Word. And our soul, maybe that's referring to the mind. And sign on our hand, what are our hands doing? Are they living as though these words are true? And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens remain above the earth. Is that how our life... Does our doorpost? Not that you need to put a menorah or anything on your doorposts, but... Does our home reflect that God is the Lord of that home? Does our yard reflect that God is the Lord of that yard? I'm not talking about perfectly clean and ordered. We, I have kids. <laughs> Don't come look at my yard right now. But is your house inviting hospitable? Or is your house, Megan and I were reading a, a book last night, is, is your house, you know, got plastic all over the seats in the living room because you want to keep it pristine and perfect and, and it's got a, a little, uh, uh, one of those, what do you call them? They have them in museums to keep people out of the room. It's like those velvet ropes. And it's like, oh, Thomas Jefferson was born here. Is that your living room? Does our home reflect that we want unbelievers to experience the love of Christ in our home? Are we inviting unbelievers into our home? Are we making it clear that we love the lost? Do our trips reflect that we love the Lord? I don't know. These are questions I'm asking myself. So, if you're convicted, it's not me, it's the Lord. (laughs) But if our life is not lived unto the Lord, the question is, are we being led by His Spirit or by our own selfish desires? I for myself, want to be led by the Spirit. I want His Word to be the delight of my heart. And I want to see my children follow the Lord and their children and their children until the Lord returns. That's my prayer. Not because Megan and I are perfect, because if you ask our kids, they'll tell you we aren't. We haven't always disciplined rightly. We haven't always spoken to them in the right way. But that's our desire. That's our heart's desire. So I was reading a a book by Andrew Murray, and he had this prayer that I thought was really something that resonated with me. I want my head, my heart, and my hands to be the Lord's. And I think this prayer is one that would bring that about. And he says, Father, let the Holy Ghost have full dominion over me, in my home, in my temper, in every word of my tongue, in every thought of my heart, in every feeling toward my fellow man, let this Holy Spirit have entire possession. The hard prayer to pray, right? Because then if the Holy Spirit convicts you when your, your tongue is not speaking the right words, or your thoughts are thinking about that person, that, that man or woman who was walking down the street, or about how you want to get back at that other person who did that to you, or whatever your thoughts are doing, even your feelings about somebody in the church—God forbid. Well, let's end. I'm going to pray this prayer as according to us, because I think it is—it's uh, one that I—I I feel is scriptural. So let's pray, Father. Let your Holy Spirit have dominion over each and every one of us. In our homes, in our tempers, in the words of our mouths, in the thoughts of our hearts, Lord, in our feeling towards one another and others in this world. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take full possession of us. We surrender ourselves to You, and we need Your Spirit desperately. Lord, go with us and bless us this day. Give us peace and joy. Cause Your face to shine upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I do pray that you are encouraged to draw closer to the Lord, to, sur- to search your hearts and And ask the Lord to show you those areas of your heart and your mind and your actions that are not surrendered to Him. And continue to seek His Word to know how to deal with that. Have a blessed week and we'll see you uh, next time.